welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 8, Episode 16. And I am very honored to be rebroadcasting my conversation with Mariana Nuno Ruiz McEnroe and her husband, Ian McEnroe, who I love dearly and who are just amazing authors who produced this wonderful book, Dining with the Dead. um, Dining with the Dead is a fantastic book, and it would be easy to think on the face of it that it was just a book about the Day of the Dead. And and it is about the Day of the Dead, but it is about so many other things, too. It is a cookbook. It is a book about the tradition of um, the Day of the Dead, Dios de los Muertos. It is about Mexican cuisine, a very good book about Mexican cuisine. I think it rivals that of uh, Rick Bayless and... Uh, um, Diana Kennedy. Um, I really think it's an amazing cookbook and it's just one of the best. Honestly, it's one of the best. I really prize this book, um, not only for its writing content, but for the wonderful, just gorgeous, lush photographs in the book. I often been tempted to want to just rip the pages out and eat some of them. Um, and I'm not convinced they wouldn't be good to eat because they're so well done. Um, I just think it's a great book. I, I, I was jokingly saying to the authors that when I die, I want it to be placed on my uh, my chest when I'm buried. And I'm only half kidding, really, because if I was to take a book with me to the grave, I'd want to take this one. I know this sounds like hyperbole, but you know, when you do love a book, you love a book. And it's just uh, it's just a great book. It, it just really hands down, accessible, usable, lovable, everything good, all good things. And then... We have the whole thing about Mariana and Ian being just great, fun people to talk to. You feel like you've known them for 20 years. It just, when you talk to them, they're just great people. I love them. They're great. I hope I get to meet them one day because they were just so wonderful to talk to. So that gushing aside, I hope you listen to this rebroadcast of my conversation with uh, Ian and Mariana. Hope you have a really great day today. It's the Day of the Dead. Um, You know, in my tradition, we like to say, what is remembered lives. And um, I got to honor many dead this last weekend. And uh, we have altars up for our dead, as we do every year. We usually um, put out food and drinks for them. And it's serious business. We're not just doing it to be kitschy or fun. And um, it's a big part of our family tradition. And we love our dead. And we honor them. And it's very serious stuff. But also, we do it with love. And we do it with fun. We do it with a sense of um, with a sense of passion that comes from, you know, getting to do this year after year and and looking forward to it because we get to talk and tell stories and and they become alive again. So, enough of my uh, babbling. I'm going to take you to my conversation with Mariana and Ian McEnroe and uh, our conversation about their book, Dining with the Dead. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. This is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian, and today I'm very honored to have on my program Mariana Nuno Ruiz and Ian McEnroe, who have written the book Dining with the Dead, A Feast for the Souls on the Day of the Dead. Mariana and Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, Dean. So um, I wanted to ask you, um, for our listeners who are not very familiar with your work, can you tell them a little bit about yourselves? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, this is Ian. I'm the photographer who uh, created the photos in the book. Uh, 
and a co-author who also participated in the writing. Um, I'm a photo teacher and consultant uh, and an artist um, with a background in uh, fine arts. And uh, yeah, I was really excited to work on this project uh, with my wife, Mariana. And um, I'm Mariana McEnroe, my maiden name, Nuno Ruiz. I'm from Mexico. I study and um, grew up there. Um, I was an architect and then I decided to study culinary arts. And so now I'm an architect. <laughs> um, uh, my second career, obviously, uh, culinary arts. Uh, I develop recipes. Uh, I'm the art director of the book. Uh, also, all the recipes and development and research about uh, the book was done by me. What was the inspiration for writing your book, Dining with the Dead? Uh, it was a way to share the Mexican culture through food and exploring a, a really, truly beloved uh, tradition in Mexico. Um, it was an opportunity to portray my Mexico, my culture, in a very honest and sincere way, you know, through history, origins, memories, um, learning from research and from people, and overall, like, experiencing, experiencing um, the living and leaving the tradition in Mexico. Now, you both have a blog called Yes More, Please. Can you talk about your blog? Sure. Um, we created uh, this blog um, in 2013 just to combine our, you know, our interest in photography, my recipes, and my cooking. And it was honestly an outlet for our creativity. And we share recipes, stories. We always wanted the blog to have like a extra, um, like extra points that when you see a recipe online, you also could learn a technique or know about an ingredient or a background story of the recipe. So that was our motive. <laughs> and all the recipes are photographed, photographed by Ian and um, step by step, because for me it was very important that people, um, you know, had the certainty that the recipe was going to come out just like as the pretty photo, you know? It wasn't just like a pretty photo. You knew that from start to finish, you, you were going to be guided um, to make the recipe possible. And it was also, you know, trying to inspiring people how to cook at home. Uh, we also included some uh, music pairings. And, oh, nice. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, it features a lot of uh, content that's kind of personal to us. But but yeah, the, the goal in terms of like the, the, the way we approached blogging was to present something that um, an individual could scratch cook who may or may not have a great deal of cooking experience because um, some of the recipes are basic and some are more sophisticated, a little more complex, but we approach everything as if, you know, at each step of the way, if, the, if we could avoid confusion and illustrate a, a method a, or a, a, an ingredient and a preparation style, we, we did it. So it's, um, 
it, it was very time consuming to put a post ups the way we do it <laughs> yeah. took a week because um, the, the whole process wanted we wanted to document it rather than kind of toss people the final result and say, well, you know, I hope you can work this out from the way we wrote it because <laughs> that's the, the real trick in, in uh, food blogging in terms of like recipes, I think. Did you have any trouble finding a publisher to for the idea or was it pretty easy to find somebody that would take the idea and let you do what you wanted to do? Well, in fact, we were approached by our publisher. So the editor saw one of our online recipes about pan de muerto and the Dia de Muertos tradition that had been um, like a aggregated in yeah, this it was on program. some third party uh, site or something, but, uh, you know, BuzzFeed. Yeah, it was BuzzFeed Buzz and uh, uh -huh. they had done it with permission. Um, and that led him to our site um, where he was able to, you know, get the idea of the kind of work we pr prefer to do. And and then um, he, he approached, approached us, us about collaborating on a Dia de Muertos uh, cookbook because cookbook. Uh, he thought it would be a good theme. and. And we agreed that if, you know, we could put in more than just a few recipes and, you know, things like that, we wanted it to be uh, a real account of the holiday. And we agreed that that would be the approach to the book. Um, and, and uh, well, yes, I mean, our editor, Aaron Downey, he came with the idea of have, making a book about Dia de Muertos, Day of the Dead. But um, we knew that it was not going to be able to be just a regular cookbook with just recipes about Dia de Muertos because how Dia de Muertos works. So we knew that we contra proposed um, that the book needed to have history, origins, and more about the tradition itself, the culture, and the gastronomy aspect in order to be a complete book of the tradition. So, and they accepted it. I mean, they say yes. And we just started our journey. The pandemic has, the pandemic has been really hard on publishing. Um, you published this during a time when, you know, a lot of publishers were hard hit. Did it have any effects on um, the publishing of the book, like I know that there was a Kickstarter for this. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the Kickstarter was uh, something that initially we were uh, not, um, you know, even prepared for because the, um, the at the point when we had finished all the work on the book and it was ready to be printed, that was exactly the point when the pandemic shut everything down. So we had entirely finished the project. And as far as we were concerned, they were just gonna print it and, and release it uh, at that stage. Um, but after a full year of uh, being in lockdown, um, the publisher was operating at a fraction of their full potential. And uh, of course, you know, they'd lost all this revenue and it was gonna be a very expensive proposition to create the book and print it. Um, and that's what inspired our editor uh, to, um, move ahead with a Kickstarter. And we basically got on board with that. 
invited all our friends and family and supporters and blog followers and all the kind folks in the world who had an interest in the project. And um, yeah, we were, uh, we were blessed by a whole lot of very, very supportive people who uh, helped fund it. Yes, Rebecca, we, we got involved on all the designing, the swags and the rewards. We designed like a stickers, a bandana, a um, bookmark for the, we printed some of the photos that were in the book, a collage, you know, as a, a way to provide incentives for the campaign. And also, well, they, once the campaign launched, uh, it was extremely, <laughs> extremely anxious, anxious and stressful time, you know, because we didn't know Kickstarter works all or nothing. So, and it gives you 30 days. And <laughs> so we just started, you know, at the same time, a lot of, a lot of uh, positive, positivity fueled by the response of our friends and family and even people we didn't know when they read about the project, they were excited about it. So that started to give us, you know, confidence and we just start content contacting everyone and everywhere that we could at, you know, get a hold of it and emails to everybody uh, from bookstores, um, libraries, museums, teachers, friends, uh, friends of friends. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of people was... who were able to, to pitch in and, and, and it was even got to an international level where there were people from, uh, you know, overseas countries that were really excited about it. And initially we weren't going to be able to, you know, get books to them, but we worked it out and people in Germany, Denmark, Canada, Australia, Mexico. Um, so we were very, very uh, excited to get all the support. And um, certainly it was a very new experience for us because we'd never, we'd never crowdfunded anything before and uh, hadn't really had any experience with it. But uh, yeah, we were we were luckily uh, very very well supported, so we got funded and and then some uh, at our goal level plus a little extra. What was it like for you to see the book when you finally got the the copies uh, sent to you after it was published? It must have been like a wonderful experience for you to see your photography and your writing in this new book for for yourself. What was that like? Oh, it was uh, startling. I think. Um, when we got it, it, you know, a single a single copy was mailed to us that had been, um, you know, pressed and and was ahead of the the regular shipment coming from the printer overseas. So when we received this one book, it was you know the culmination of um, basically a five year project wow. um, <laughs> that we we'd spent all our spare time, efforts, and resources creating and. Uh, yeah, there's a video. There's a video of us on Instagram um, opening the book because we went ahead and filmed it, and we wanted to share the experience of the first moment we saw the book with, you know, with all our supporters mm -hmm. and our families and friends. You know, we thought it was just fair to them because yeah. <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, not not uh, not to diminish, you know, childbirth, but it was it was somewhat analogous to to having all that, you know enter the world from yeah. essentially 
you know, the digital format that it had been in while it was in process, because, you know, we didn't have galleys or anything to look at or a hard copy at all prior to the print. No. Um, so <laughs> it was a, uh, it was exciting and, you know, certainly exhilarating to, to get a look at a, a thing we made that, you know, weighs three and a half pounds and has, yeah, has a 500 plus pictures and a hundred plus recipes. It was, it was a, it was a, little... a colossal amount of time and effort. Now, can you both talk to me about what Dia, Dia de los Muertos means to you? Like this must've been a really important holiday for you to write a book about it. Yeah, uh, Dia de Muertos, initially I didn't really know a whole lot about it, especially when we started the project, um, except for some of the very most basic components of kind of what it meant, but it, it's come to mean a lot more to me over time. And I think it's just the most wonderful way to consider uh, past relationships with people that, that, that have passed away and, you know, that may or may not be at all present in any, you know, form anymore. And, you know, these, these, these past relationships, um, you know, can be forgotten, but this way, you're, you're memorializing someone in, in the most familiar way. Um, and instead of, uh, you know, putting up a plaque, which is a, a great way to memorialize somebody, it, it, it's, a, it's a little more uh, casual in that you're inviting them into your home. You're, you're saying, come back and visit with me again and, and uh, let's have a little party and why don't you come to dinner? Um, which is really not an element in, you know, uh, North American culture that, you know, we have typically. So I think it's, uh, it, it adds a lot to um, my sense of my connection with people, uh, you know, that have family members that have passed away that, you know, nothing else kind of works like that as far as, uh, you know, things I was familiar with. Yes, I mean, for me as a Mexican, you know, it's, it's the day that we know that they're gonna come and visit you. It's the way. It's it's the day that you are gonna remember and honor your departed. Um, that in a way, in a joyful way, is never sad. I mean, it's always through food, music, things that you beloved enjoyed in life. So based on those. The premise is we're gonna have a good time. We're gonna remember you. You wanna play some objects that, that that person loved that maybe we're gonna share memories with the friends or the company you decide to invite that day. And some people even it's an opportunity to, um, you know, to resolve little grudges or problems or, you know, in a way, it's like an every day you renew your memories through the animals. So then they're always with you in a good way. Now, I've seen a lot of uh, the I've seen a lot of the uh, iconography of Dia de los Muertos used in like fashion and in decorating and like all these things sold at Halloween time. Do you think it's been trebalized somewhat in our popular culture? They're taking a lot of the imagery and they're like just slapping it on stuff. Do you feel like it's sometimes maybe 
dilutes the idea of the holiday? Well, I think using that iconography to, you know, um, to decorate with is, is something I would, I, it's not too unexpected in terms of, you know, um, the trend itself, but it is something that I don't think really relates to the cultural tradition in any way, mm -hmm. because it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with memorializing your loved ones or um, connecting with your past or, or even the concept of like memento mori or, you know, that, that we all have uh, a certain amount of time, you know, all those, all those uh, concepts that deal with death, I, I don't think really connect to, you know, somebody who's put a calavera on, you know, a potholder to, you know, decorate it. It just, it seems. Um, That's more like the folk part of the celebration or the tradition. Right. But um, it doesn't have to do anything with the meaning or even what, what we experience in Mexico when we were researching and living it. Nobody, we didn't see yeah. any of those elements. It's not a year. decorative uh, holiday in Mexico, uh -huh. which is kind of hard to understand because I think here in the United States, we we tend to quickly use like those kinds of iconography as decoration um, because it's colorful, it's, it's colorful and exotic and eye-catching. But in Mexico, you don't you don't really see calaveras on things and sugar skulls and 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 in fashion. I mean, certainly that's that's changing a bit, but it is changing in, in the it's... places we've visited and and did a lot of our book research. Um, uh, the Dia de Muertos tradition is entirely different, and and a sugar skull is certainly present there, but it, it's not it's not painted on a lot of things and sold. Halloween has a lot of similar associations. Do you think people often get them confused or kind of lump them together as one big celebration? Well, in the United States, like speaking as a um, you know, somebody who's grown up here and in the U.S., we, without any familiarity, it's hard to contextualize Dia de Muertos, except that you see some skulls and it happens on Halloween. So you make some associations and, and figure it's some kind of extension of it. Um, but really, they don't have much to do with one another uh, as you examine how the celebration works and what it means, because um, in Mexico and, and throughout the tradition of Dia de Muertos, there isn't, you don't go around asking for candy and dressing up in costumes, um, you know, trying to frighten people or act like spirits. It's, it's, it's a much more festive, uh, much more warm and familial religious tradition. Yeah, and and not one that's been secularized or or made for other purposes. I I mean that not to diminish Halloween because you know I I think Halloween's fantastic. It's just it, it really isn't any any sort of connection to Dia de Muertos at all. No, I mean maybe the confusion comes because the days kind of overlap. You know, yeah. dates wise, uh, and also because I feel the same. Uh, utilization of the 
elements that you mentioned, you know, like the skulls and all these propaganda and commercial things um, have been on a way like interconnected. Yeah. And all about the use of the Katrinas and the painting of faces and, you know, all those elements that are folk and new because as any tradition, it will evolve and it's keep evolving and it has changed even since we started the tradition up to now. And, and yes, I mean, it's just um, completely different uh, holidays. Now it takes place usually after Halloween though, because I like, I know that in the Bay Area, we always have celebrations for it and it's always after November 1st. Is that correct, the time frame? Well, in uh, in Mexico, certain parts, I mean, they start on the 31st where the small souls arrive. The small souls and people who... And that would be like the death of a child, memorializing the, uh -huh, the death of a, a child. child. Or somebody who died on an accident, unexpected, you know, they call it innocentes. Um, like innocent, like something that happened suddenly. And then the second uh, night is when you expect all the people, you know, all the adults that die of natural, die of causes, natural or... causes. And that's when everybody received them on the spawn of the November 2nd. And there's even some other indigenous tradition that starts a week before and a week after they keep celebrating. Yeah, so the, the calendar dates can shift a little depending on the region. Mm -hmm. But yeah, mostly it's celebrated on the first and second. You first, know. second, or 31st. Uh, and first of first uh, November. First and second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the three so it days. can be go, yeah, it can go two or three days depending. But um, yeah, we, we were able to experience a couple different nights of celebration when we, when we were on our, uh, on our research trips and, um, you know, basically picking up um, on what the local uh, traditions were and a lot of the, the things that were done were on, on two separate nights. I've seen a lot of um, items used in the celebrations that seem fairly typical, like marigolds and copal incense. Are there other things that are usually associated with the holiday like that? Well, uh, what did you say, the marigolds? Yeah, usually I see altars with uh -huh. mar marigolds on them quite a bit, and then copal uh -huh. incense is burned. Is that pretty typical of the holiday? Yes, 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 indeed. There are elements, you know, there's always elements of nature, elements of air, elements of um, uh, sanctification, uh, since it's a, the origins is from Catholics, so they use salt, water, um, the candles as a you know, as a way to sanctify the place and also to drive the spirits, you know, or to allure them mm -hmm. to the place of uh, the party, <laughs> let's say, or the celebration, where they're going to celebrate. They put these uh, little caminos or entryways with petals, the marigold petals, but it also can be candles or it can be just the um, copal or incense that, you know, any way that you can allure your guests to the place of the altar or the ofrenda. Um, and then there's gifts of food, obviously. And then like... there's food, 
Obviously, Muerto is one of the most iconic uh, elements and sugar skulls as well with the name. And each element through the history and origins have uh, significance. And that's also what we talk about in the book. Like you can learn the significance of these elements and how the meaning has been changing or why they the origin of that element into the outer yeah, world. Each thing has its own purpose and mm -hmm. um, it's not evident necessarily looking at uh, an ofrenda, which is the, the altar. Um, for each of these things, there's a different, a different meaning and a different use and a different uh, origin. And but also, uh, food offerings are a big part of it. And, and one thing we emphasize in the book is a lot of the recipes are things that you know, you'd eat in celebration, but also things you'd share on the altar, um, tamales and the various different kinds of mole dishes, drinks. You know, you bring mascal, you could bring um, punch or just like anything familiar to the, the one that's um, being summoned back from, from beyond. So um, there's quite a vast number of things that end up in that category. When you really look at ofrendas in Mexico there. Yes, and also they're very regional. So the way you find uh, ofrenda in Michoacán versus Oaxaca or the Estado of Mexico, Veracruz, uh, even the Yucatan Peninsula, or if you go all the way up in Sonora, uh, Jalisco, is extremely different. And because they celebrate of what they harvest, or what yeah. is in season, and uh, that's also what their beliefs, the, you know, uh, in certain groups, there are different indigenous people that they were, um, you know, um, let's say religionized by different, uh, yeah, Jesuits different. or they were Franciscans or different Catholic orders. So oh, yeah, that makes sense. It makes uh, yes, it makes sense. And at the same time, when you go and you see the, dif the different ways they celebrate, uh, then you realize why. And you also see, um, speaking about marigolds, uh, there's a couple other significant kinds of flowers, flowers that are harvested yes. and put on the altar consistently. Um, a red flower called coxcomb, which uh, is, is somewhat less familiar if you're uh, in See. North America, and then uh, the baby's breath flowers that you often see with uh, like a rose uh, mm -hmm. given with roses, those are, or those gladiolas. are gladiolas. Uh, so they cultivate flower. a lot of, you know, different flowers that are uh, more indigenous to the land, but but certainly, you know, grow all over in, in uh, Michoacan where we uh, we were lucky enough to, to photograph and capture images for our book and and learn about celebrations. So um, I'm visiting the fields, the yeah. flowers. I mean, why they grow? You know, there's a photo in the book when we encounter these beautiful um, cultivars, and it was like a, a row of uh, maize, you know, corn. yeah, yeah, and then marigolds, and then the the flor de obispo, which is a coxcomb, mm -hmm. and then the white flowers, the baby's breath. You know, and it was one row of each color. And That's then beautiful. The lady, yes, it was absolutely mesmerizing. And the lady, the farmer with that 
was very nice to talk to us and explain why they grow in that way. And, you know, all these meanings that we take for granted or sometimes we see them and we think they're just... Yeah, just for like a, something beautiful and, uh -huh. and they are beautiful, but but yeah, they connect back to a, a certain concept or well, why is that orange significant or that red? Anyway, um, the book, we talk about the we book. We spend a lot each. of time illustrating and talking about that and especially the um, the section of the book where we go into, uh, you know, the altars and how to set up an altar in your home. Now, can we talk about the foods that are associated? You wrote many recipes and had good photographs of these foods. Can we talk about some of the foods that are associated with Dias de los Muertos? Well, <laughs> on the same, absolutely, yes. I mean, on the book, we have 112 recipes. It was extremely hard to, uh, let's say, reduce the recipes on a way that made sense and on a way that they could be made here in the States. You know, that was my, my also my big concern because I could have made just a book of, with all these other recipes, but then nobody were, was going to be able to make them, right? <laughs> so I tried to, to make recipes that were, um, made in in these regions and that are used you know for dia de muertos because there's special recipes that not only are offered to the people that come and visit us but also for the people you know that are in this world <laughs> having fun and celebrating your departed uh so for example mole negro uh, uh, mole amarillo from Oaxaca. Those are a very traditional moles that are made for especially those days of Dia de Muertos. And obviously they make tamales with them. All the products of the milpa, which is the harvesting days. The harvesting season, which is maize, tomato, chiles, um, calabaza, the, the squashes and all the byproducts of that. So it's like atoles or the porridge made of corn, um, several drinks with fruits and punch fruits. Um, obviously tamales is like, there's Castilian. <laughs> Each region has a specific tamal. I'm just, I mean, Veracruz, Acahuiles, um, there's a special tamal made with blue masa and black beans and it's black because, you know, it represents death or in that specific area in Oaxaca. But again, I try to narrow down the recipes to things that you could make at home in the States, in this side. And uh, I included also in the book, some recipes like the Corundas de Cinco Picos, which is a pentagonal tamalito uh, that is made in Michoacán, and I learned the recipe from a traditional uh, cook, cocinero tradicional, and uh, and those are especially made at that time of the year again for seasonality, and they are offered at the ofrendas and Dia de Muertos specifically. Um, 
another dish that, you know, pan de muerto has to be on the altar because that's the offrenda, that's what it symbolized, the commune uh, with your departed, you cut the bread, you, it's like, you know, communing with your, with the souls. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of things in the book that are made to be shared and, um, there are dishes that, that work well in the context of like a, a celebration where you might have guests and, and a family get together um, because that's a lot of what's done in Mexico during the holiday. Um, but there's things that people can prepare in the book year round. It isn't exclusively about Dia de Muertos food. I mean, you could, you could easily eat a mole dish um, you know, during almost any time of the year where you want For something. For a birthday or other celebration, I mean, in fact, the book is like... Yeah, it's built around these different sections. And um, a lot of the food in it is uh, even something you could eat as a casual meal. I wouldn't say um, that's the dominant element, but we have some dishes, uh, enchiladas and some other street foods and things that are, that, are, that are items that people could eat very casually. But Mexico has got such a rich food tradition. It, it, it wasn't hard to find, you know, a, a number of different things to include. It was it was more a question of um, uh, how can we narrow it down and include things that are that are more practical for the American cook or and also but practical and meaningful. You know, like it wasn't that oh no, I'm not gonna make that because I don't like it. No, I love that. But again, it was just to try to introduce with more ease the concept of Dia de Muertos and at the same time, the meanings of these foods during the celebration. You have some really great recipes in here. I really liked, uh, there are so many favorites of mine, like uh, the pozole, I like the pabil. The pabil. Um, I, I like to make for my kids the maranito porquito cookies. That's a favorite oh, really? of mine. Yeah. <laughs> I have a little, I have a little, um, cookie cutter that's shaped like a pig that I use. Awesome, awesome. Yes, yes, yes. Those were my absolutely favorite and my mom's and my brother favorites. Yeah. So again, I decided to include them. Some of the recipes I decided to include it because thinking of how about if somebody makes a ofrenda for me, I would love <laughs> these to be in the ofrenda, you know, but also some of those breads and sweets or recipes are very iconic of uh, Mexican traditional food. And I want it also to be present and be part of the tradition. So people, you know, associate that and maybe they can have a memory of their roots or their family. Were there any that are specific to uh, the area where you grew up? It was in uh, Jalisco. Well, in Jalisco, it's almost the same because it's like Jalisco has a very strong uh, production of maize and also is a very rich state, uh, culturally speaking. I mean, there's many regions, north, south, east, and you can find from people who dedicate to how to say ganado, like the, all the milk products and and then other people who grow just maize and um, chiles. There's an area in Jalisco that is just specifically they grow lots of chiles. So it was hard also to 
just to say, this is the, the iconic Dia de Muertos food from Jalisco. There's many. So any byproduct of maize, like atoles, porridge, uh, made with maize and masa, the tortillas, the tamales, in their own particular way, you know, with different feelings. Pozole, I mean, pozole rojo, pozole blanco. Um, those are definitely foods that you will find in Jalisco at any celebration. And of course, Dia de Muertos. Ian, I wanted to ask you, um, I, I really loved your photography in this. And I, when you said that you're already a photographer, it made a lot of sense. A lot of people that I've talked to that do cookbooks, either some of them just like they do the photography and it's amazing. Other times they have a learning curve with the food photography. Was there any kind of learning curves for you when doing the food photography? Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> I'd say that uh, especially when I started in my approach to food photography, that the aesthetic aspects of, of staging and lighting and um, photographing from different angles was something that uh, was new and really unfamiliar because it wasn't something I've, I've uh, been trained on formally or, or had a whole lot of experience with. So when Mariana and I started to collaborate, um, we were able to really work on that together um, to, to sort of create a look or a, a feeling that we wanted to associate with the kind of uh, images that we, we used in our work. Um, it so it was more... a collaborative thing and, and Mariana, uh, just as much as myself had, you know, a lot to do with the look of how images uh, were put together and, and the feeling and and it is hard to shoot pictures of food and in what you know in an inspired way um, but we've sought to try to approach every image that we put together you know in these projects especially this book uh, with a certain intention in mind because it's very easy to fall into a pattern where you do everything in a very repetitive, systematic way, and and that's adequately, you know, that's adequate and fine. But but we've really never stopped in a pursuit of like creating mood and feeling and things that relate to the food and and the the tradition and and the style of cooking because of honestly, all of those things we want to use to accentuate the quality of the picture. And honestly, I mean the the main goal or at least I had the main goal as being the art director of the project um, of having the food as we, as I would serve it. You know, like how would I serve this food to my family or to Ian or how we would eat it? Well, in the most natural organic way, like, yes, I'm gonna put the lettuce like this or rabanitos, the radishes, you know, yes, I'm gonna squeeze the lime. <laughs> Just in a very honest way, you know, the way serve not a lot of um, chatskis around and well, <laughs> all these decorations. Yeah. It's more about the food, the plate of food, like how the juiciness of the broth with the with the meat and how the crema drips over the tacos and the salsas, yeah. how the salsa is less squash in the molcajete, you know. 
that's what we wanted to capture in the foods. A visceral feeling. A visceral that, feeling, like how you, you know. would feel, how the salsa would look in the molcajete when you smash the chiles, and then when you add the tomatoes and the chard, so people know yeah. uh, what they're going to cook, and they get excited about, you know? And it's hard to put into, you know, a, a precise language exactly what you do with a camera uh, to create that, but it, it is certainly a process, and, you know, um, just when you figure you understand exactly what to do, uh, you you, 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 <laughs> we, we introduce a new element or a new, a new plating or a new kind of recipe. And, and we, we end up having to think and rework things. And, and it's exciting because it, it's never dull. And it, it certainly kept us on our toes. And um, yeah, we had to even develop a language, you know, because me as a cook and as a photographer, like I could not ask for the same terms, you know, but we developed a language that we knew that which angles would look best or how these, uh, I don't know, this taco dorado or this plate would look more uh, appetizing. And then Ian has a, an amazing uh, manage of lighting in a certain way as well that it looks appetizing, more natural, more organic, that it doesn't look like a plastic food or, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. not, no glamour, yeah. let's say. We also <laughs> like don't. Remove the glamour and just like capture the food as delicious as it can be. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one thing I think is worth mentioning about the presentation of the food in the book is that it, it it's more than just, you know, looking appetizing. We ate that food. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> that that was our dinner, or yeah. maybe lunch even. Um, in many cases, and when we presented it, uh, it's not styled. I mean, it's it's plated certainly, but but we never introduced anything that wasn't in the way it would be served on a plate to eat. Um, so you you don't see a picture of something that that has been painted or or given any treatment that um, goes outside of exactly the culinary uh, nature of how it's made. So- No, uh, in fact, there's a photo <laughs> of the clemole. When I was serving it, oops, there were some drops yeah. on the on the tablecloth. And it was super late at night and we were shooting and we were so tired. We we're like, okay, that's what it's gonna be because you know what? <laughs> That's when people serve these, I happen. mean, it's gonna happen. I mean, it's, it's juicy. It's gonna drip. So there's gonna be drips. Yeah. So let it be. Yeah. <laughs> Just like yeah, shooting food is is a little more complex than I think it probably lets on on the outside um, I know, to there's... an observer because uh, certain things are taken for granted. But it, yeah, it's like a, there's it's a very photo. complicated sometimes. There's a photo on the mole preparation. And that I, for a minute, I turned around to wash a dish. I don't remember what. And when I turned around and I stopped, you know, you always have to be moving the mole like a steering, steering the pot, steering the pot. Because if not, if it sticks on the bottom, but also because if you don't, it became like a volcano lava. Oh no, pot, it just explodes. And oh. then all these plop, plop, plop. 
Yeah. Then you have little dots all over your stove. So that happened to me yeah, just, <laughs> during the preparation. And then I was like, yeah, you have to shoot this because yeah. we have to tell people like you have to watch yeah, this, this mole as like a hog. And, you know, things that happen like that, but that we really wanted to portray like again, honest and sincerely our experiences. And that also, you know, not a, like a perfect world of uh <laughs> yeah i mean it you know we wanted it to be beautiful but natural and, and that's what we said about doing and it's just i think the volume of the of the number of recipes and the number of photos it, it was very very demanding and it it certainly i think we're very grateful that you know we were able to spend as much time as we did putting it together but um yeah, many, many hours went into each shoot. And um, luckily, I think the results came out favorable and we were really uh, satisfied with what we put in the book. This episode of the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast is sponsored by the Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit the website at www.chnorcal.org. Do you have any favorite recipes from it? I mean, I know it's hard to say because they're all your babies, but do you have any couple of recipes you guys really love from this that's like a favorite? <laughs> well, yeah, we do. Um, there are some pet recipes that are kind of like, you know, favorites and, and you know, I can speak for, uh, you know, my own tastes. And I, I personally really like Pan de Muerto, which wasn't, you know, familiar to me until I met Mariana and, um, you know, sort of experience what it's like to have it. It's a different texture and flavor of bread than, than we have in the States. And it's really delicious served with, uh, you know, hot chocolate or coffee. And, um, and, and I really like the street enchiladas, which is a dish I had um, oh. right on the, the streets of uh, Pascuaro in, in, in Michoacan. Uh, late at night, women were cooking on the streets with a coal-fired pan and created this really loose sort of uh, uh, juicy, delicious, saucy, saucy enchilada dish. And um, uh, that was really fantastic. We were able to create a recipe for that and that, that's in the book. And, and I do enjoy tamales quite a bit. I think they're really fantastic. Who doesn't? So there's, there's, <laughs> a number, there's a whole, there's a whole oh host of tamale recipes that I, I, I like the savory ones a little better than the sweet ones, I'll admit, because that's just my taste. But um, with, with just, you know, the, the, the most succulent kind of masa dough and that, that just divine kind of feeling of pork with sauce, it's just, they're just fantastic. So, so it's really easy for me to think of a few things I, I enjoy. I, I love beans. I mean, uh, that's my dad row meal. Like I'm, me too. Like a, um, frijolitos de la olla, you know, from the pot on a clay pot, beans that you cook on a clay pot and just mm, very simple dressed. And there's the recipe on the book, frijolitos de la olla. And then there's also very delicious bean soup uh it's called tarascan bean soup and it's particular from michoacan 
um, that is absolutely delicious, very simple to make. And of course, moles. Mole coloradito is one of my favorites. Mm, yummy. And I can go on and on, and on because there's many. And I, I love most of the, you know, the ponche, ponche de granada, which is a pomegranate punch. Oh, nice. Uh, in Jalisco, there's uh, a lot of uh, punch, fruit punches like that, which basically is tequila and a fruit juice that have been combined and you leave it, you know, macerate for a couple of days and then you drink that as an aperitif or you can drink it after uh, a meal with a little ice or ice crush and it's absolutely delicious. So there's many recipes uh, for like ponche de granada, quince, uh, blackberry and mandarin and star anise that I absolutely love too. <laughs> yeah. These are these are things that I think would we'd be real excited to see catch on here in the states too because they're 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 really delicious and 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 they go well as a you know as far as party drinks go is they're as good as anything I think I've ever had. Um, you know, it's it's just a different vocabulary of flavors but, but and it's so very delicious. good because you can make it and have it on your friend that and then if somebody visits, you know, if your family arrives, you can give them a little shot or a little glass. And it's a very nice way to start the celebration. Yeah. <laughs> I think you guys had included atoll too. Atoll? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's There's a favorite There's more than six recipes or eight recipes of atolles. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. So for warm good. drinks, that's just tops because it's thick and creamy and warm and very comforting. Yeah, I don't know why it's not more popular in America. Like, it's so good. Like, why isn't it catch on here? Like, because it, I could see it being very popular, you know, because it yeah. is so nice in the wintertime. And it's gluten free, you know, yeah. here everybody has gluten sometimes allergies. And that is a recipe that everybody can enjoy with any kind of milk. It will work, you know, if it's not any of the yeah, dairy or alternative dairies or, whatever. Dairies or uh, yeah there's, there's a, a lot of things that i think are included in it that would would be really satisfying and and become a regular thing for for folks who who want to try different kinds of um, beverages and, and snacks and, and very and, comforting and, yeah very comforting one pot situation just add whatever seasonal fruit or even you know there's one atole that I included in the book that utilizes uh, the pumpkin the braised pumpkin this braised pumpkin is absolutely one of the one of friendas in Mexico it's called calabaza and tacha so basically it's uh, the pumpkin that you quarter and braised in piloncillo, you see these cones of um, sugar cane cones, yeah. and then cinnamon sticks, a little bit of cloves, and then you braise the pumpkin, and you have this absolutely delicious kind of like a custardy pumpkin dessert that you can drink with milk, or since the recipe makes a lot, you know, because depending on the size of the pumpkin you buy, but you can add that to your atole and have a pumpkin atole, which is absolutely delicious. That sounds so, great. 
from one recipe, you have two recipes and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know. Now, I see you guys have an impressive book collection behind you. I know the people that are listening can't <laughs> see that. Do you guys have any favorite food authors that are, you know, some people that you really enjoy? Definitely. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> uh, we're saying a question like food writers. Yeah. I love Anthony Bourdain, of course, Jeffrey Steingart, um, Michael Roman, uh, Diana Kennedy. Uh, oh, yeah, she's great. Yes, Alice Douglas. And then from Mexico, I love uh, Monica Lavin and Maru Toledo, which is an absolutely amazing researcher from Jalisco that is, has been working for more than 18 years in all these gastronomy and culinary traditions, and is absolutely great. I mean, that for food writers, how would you work? Oh, I like, uh, I like, yeah, uh, Bourdain was, uh, inspirational in a lot of ways when I read his books I I mean they're they're very exciting uh, accounts of like all these uh, different adventures through the culinary world and and I've read uh, like Mariana mentioned the books of Jeffrey Steingarten and how he's pursued uh, in the past these uh, amazing recipes of uh, things that ordinary people would never even try to make um, <laughs> Uh, it, it, as far as, uh, you know, food writers go, um, those are definitely my two top favorites. How about you, Dan? Uh, do, yeah, do you have any particular Sorry. that you're, uh, you're excited about? You know, Diana Kennedy, you mentioned, I just don't think it's enough press because she's just amazing. And there's so many great, I, cause I get, I'm lucky. I get to interview so many amazing writers, cookbook writers, and I'm going to have, um, somebody come on like in a couple of weeks, uh, Darina Allen from Ireland. She's got the oh, Bally, yes, the, yes. the Ballymo cooking school. Yeah. She's coming on. She's a favorite of mine. So I kind of oh. feel like I, you know, get to, I'm just feel so lucky getting to interview people like interviewing you guys. I feel really lucky. So it's, oh. it's, this is the best thing I've ever done. Well, we're really honored that you uh, chose to have us on too. We, we, we're uh, really excited to be uh, talking to you about what we do and, and the food we're interested in and everything. Yes, thank you very much. Well, this is so important, and this is such a wonderful book, and I want to promote this as much as possible. So good luck to you, and I really, I hope this book really takes off and uh, gets a lot much. of press. Yeah, well, so what's next for both of you guys? Do you guys have any other, <laughs> I mean, I know that you guys just put out a book, but do you guys have any book ideas for the future or anything? We no, do. No, we're done with food. This no. is <laughs> I'm exhausted. <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> <laughs> no, we no, no. We're, we're we're genuinely very excited about future propositions and and we would like to continue the adventure and you know work on another project uh, potentially you know mexico or uh somewhere where we can um take our readers through another journey because i think for us this book has been a love letter to mexico and you know, a, a way to hopefully help people connect to the culture and traditions of such a beautiful and wonderful place. And, you know, if, if we're even somewhat successful in that regard, then um, this this book is what we wanted to produce. But And it's worth it, all, the, all the work, you know, if but, for some reason we awaken the curiosity of new people for my culture from Mexico and their tradition 
and the, their people, but also for Mexicans that are here in the States and that they would like to connect with their roots, you know, or remember their roots, that would be amazing. Yeah, if we're, if <laughs> if, we're lucky. If we're able to do that. With well, the food yeah, or, we, we would just, that, that was uh, uh, sort of our ulterior or I guess our dominant idea in a way is, you know, sneak the culture through um, in the form of a cookbook because um, it's one thing to present recipes and it is a very honorable and important thing to tell people how to prepare something. But we wanted to give each of those recipes resonance through it, the, the, um, this gorgeous and, and fabulous culture with all this history and tradition that people aren't necessarily aware of, especially in the, in the States, I think about where these things come from and, and being able to do that in the form of a book, if, you know, uh, hopefully we, you know, if we're successful, we can do that again in a future project, but uh, yeah, we're just very grateful. We had the opportunity and the cooperation of so many fantastic Mexicans and, and people here who supported us. Yes. And the help of our editor and Downey, who was also yeah, very, very instrumental very in the project. Yeah. Well, Mexican food is so important and good Mexican food is just it's phenomenal. And I've talked to all kinds of people who either they, they, they're from America and they live abroad or they've visited America and they've gone back to, you know, their countries. Everybody says the same thing. I say, what would you, what do you miss from the United States or this region? And they always say Mexican food, real Mexican, every one of them, like people yeah. that you've seen in the show that are like these chefs and, and they're like, can you send me this or that? You know, yeah, I'll mail it to you because they can't get it where they live. And people live in England, you know, they're like, they're just now getting some Mexican food, but they're, they're still like, yeah. could you please send me some, some chiles and stuff like that? Cause oh, I can't yes. get it. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's a there's... many stories I have of that. Like I have one of my best friends, she went to Barcelona to do her uh, master. And the first thing that she that her mother called her and said, what do you need me to send you? <laughs> she was like, send me chili seeds. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? Yes, I'm going to plant some chiles in the pots of my balcony because yeah. I cannot live without chiles. <laughs> yeah, what, what I think is, is hard to appreciate, and, and I've uh, learned a, a great deal of uh, about the topic in doing the research and, and writing the book together was... Uh, that, you know, this is a culinary tradition that's that's over 400 years old. And, and that means that these are the recipes that have been around for well, not five or 10 generations, but maybe 20 generations, who knows? Yeah. And, and, and so they've, they've been prepared hundreds and thousands of times and evolved to a level of quality that's, that's hard to to find in just every culture's yeah, I mean, just... Uh, everyday food because, because that cultural tradition connects with uh, indigenous cooking and Spanish cooking and um, in some cases other traditions. And, and the outcome is that you end up with this incredibly fabulous food that is uh, entirely different from food elsewhere. I mean, just tortillas and the process of nixtamalization of corn has been more than 3000 years. And for example, tamales, I just gave a class on tamales this last December to a group of um, um, 
high school students. And I was telling them about that these tamales have not changed like, you know, a lot since those times. I mean, it's still like the energy yeah. bar. <laughs> And the energy bar of the Aztecs or <laughs> Yeah, the pre-Columbian food was fantastic before yeah. the Spanish arrived. So when I say 400 years, I just mean in the in terms of the mesh of those two cultures. But yeah, but yeah, in reality, a lot of these things go go back to to periods of time that aren't very well documented. And um well, I can certainly imagine, yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of a lot of food was lost in in terms of uh, you know, when the conquistadors showed up, they didn't necessarily all want to put together a cookbook and some of the Spanish friars <laughs> were good enough to take notes but but yeah a lot of it is uh, speculative about you know exactly what was around before anyway I just find that the historical aspect of it um, really still... cements a certain kind of importance of uh, how this food is is really the culmination of many many generations of evolution and and change I want to ask you one last question because yeah, I've lived, I have relatives that live near Austin. So I've been to, uh, I've been to, to Texas before and I've spent a lot of time around Austin. Austin's a really big uh, food city. Do you have any favorite restaurants and places to go there in Austin? Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we have definitely have favorite uh, places to eat. And, and, you know, a lot of them, um, I guess are, are really very different kinds of, of eateries. Sometimes it's it's Mexican, and we we really like Fonda San Miguel. Uh, they have just an amazing quality of Mexican food. But um, you know, we'll admit to eating a lot of barbecue if if we get the opportunity. And um, certainly, I wish we could go more frequently. But Franklin Barbecue is really fantastic, and uh, yeah. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to eat much Texas barbecue, but um, that's widely considered one of the best places to eat in the whole United States for, for that kind of cooking. Um, but we, we indulge in a lot of different kinds of uh, Asian food and other things too. Yeah, there's all kinds there. It's a great town. It's just a wonderful town to visit. Well, I want to really thank you guys for being on the program. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you, and I hope I get a chance to have you on here again. Well, thank you. Oh, had, thank you, Finn. We've had a great time talking about uh, food and, and uh, Mexico and, and the book, and um, we really appreciate the opportunity. Yes. That was my conversation with Mariana Nuno Ruiz McEnroe and Ian McEnroe, authors of Dining with the Dead. Um, this is a rebroadcast from a previous episode. I wanted to play this because it was uh, the Day of the Dead today, and um, I wanted to actually have this on the actual holiday. I hope you enjoyed this conversation um, with uh, Mariana and Ian, just wonderful people. I love talking to them. I feel like I've known them forever, and I just hope I get a chance to talk to them again someday because they're just wonderful. I hope I get to meet them in person. They're amazing. If you don't have the cookbook, you got to get it. It's seriously, you got to get it. Next week, I'm going to be having Emmanuel LaRoche on the program and we had a conversation about his brand new book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, 50 American Chefs Chart Today's Food Culture. This is a fabulous book, and it's really not a typical book in any way. It's a very unique 
departure from a lot of the food writing that we've seen. I'm excited about this book because of that and just because it's so well written and so very important. I really think this would be a great textbook for a class on uh, food, food culture and food matters. Um, it's an indispensable book and Emmanuel Roche did an amazing job. He's a great food writer and I really just had a wonderful chance getting a chance to talk to him. I hope you all have a really great week. I hope you've had a wonderful um, Halloween or Day of the Dead and have been able to celebrate and have a good time with your families. Until I talk to you again next week, keep on cooking. I've been getting